the set stories are always boring because they're very prepared. They're super professional and they don't blow up and yell at people. It's the same thing with Spielberg. It's like not really interesting production stuff. So you may be suggesting that doing a podcast about behind the scenes of the Coen Brothers was I'm just talking about why How Do You Do That gets the short stick. Sure. So now that we've analyzed our own podcast, let's get into an episode of it. Should we chant Barton Fink? For all of them. <laughs> well, we did it for the last two. Now I don't know how to start. I just want to do... That was like four of them ago. I, I just don't... Fargo. Fargo. No, it's <laughs> no, it not as work. good of a joke. Today uh, we are discussing Fargo. Yeah, we are talking about Fargo. And this is the Coen Brothers Brothers. Yeah. God, we're bad at podcasting. No, we're great. It's just, good to be casual shoot, and transparent. I mean, I just don't know when you press record. You it just, gives people the illusion that they know I you. I want people to know that, like... Swaim has this thing that he just presses record whenever he wants and he usually like he throws in weird like things into the mix like sometimes like ah shit my computer's weird or something like that that I'm pretty sure he's recording yeah because then I get the files and I edit them <laughs> and, has the and it's just like the dude fucking press record 40 minutes before he said that he did this podcast is being recorded for quality assurance <laughs> yeah so or I'll ask a particularly weird question and then right. hit record so you just hear the answer so we never have a start like usually things have structure like so Bridget will be like I don't know pony I guess if you ate it from like the hooves up and, and that'll so, just be the beginning yeah <laughs> and I, so I started at a logical spot, but it's just like weird that we're all of a sudden talking about, I don't know, like castles or some shit. And who are we? Who are we? I'm Michael Swain. I'm Abe Epperson. All right. And we're the Coen Brothers Brothers. Today we are talking about Fargo. Abe already name dropped uh, the three spectra by which we analyze every Coen Brothers movie in chronological order. They are Pejadoji, <laughs> um, How Do You Do That, How'd and Diegesis. 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 My diegesis is acting up. There's some mashugana in my diegesis. So, uh, a note about diegesis before we dive into the one for Fargo, released 1996, cinematography Roger Deakins, score Carter Burwell. <laughs> the dream team is in effect at this point. The dream point. team. Yeah, we've hit the stride of the podcast. I think a lot of you will agree we're about to hit some yeah. of the greatest And movies. this is their breakout, really. When you think about it in terms of like the colloquial or like the zeitgeist being aware of them, yeah. this is like Academy Award, they're a That's true. Now. That's true. Blood Simple got no attention or like the amount of attention indie movies get that are yeah, good. Yeah, even Art like Hudsucker was like a, like people knew Hud about Sucker it. Hudsucker flopped. I would argue Raising Arizona was like a sleeper comedy hit mm. that year. Yeah, but it was still, Box office -wise. I still think it felt indie to everyone. Fargo um, is like, oh, they're here forever. The, oh, and they're making <laughs> yeah. Academy Award type level forever. shit. Yeah. Um, um, but a note about how we do diegesis. Basically, I think on Hudsucker, which was the last one, we were like, we understand that it's important that you get a refresher because if you're listening to this, you want to be able to call the scene to mind if you haven't watched yeah. the movie in a while so you can keep up with the conversation. But at the same time... It's boring as fuck. Can we describe... Like, are we going to speak a treatment of the film every time? Right. That We had the same problem on Cracked Movie Podcast with uh, uh, when it was just me and Tom, uh -huh. is that I kept trying to... Let's just make a paragraph, just write it out, say it real quick, and then start talking about like the cool stuff about Jaws. Right. You know, like... Boy meets shark, shark, you know, shark meets boy. Uh huh. They fall in love. World know? meets shark. Yeah. Topanga kills shark. Can we just like <laughs> make it as condensed as possible? See, but then I do. Well, here, first of all, it worked on uh, Vana guys. Mm -hmm. It was a really useful strike. And I think that might be something unique about books. 
I think it's because they're so vast. They're also. so vast that how the fuck else are you going to go through it? With a movie, it still feels like if you just give me 30 minutes, I feel like I can tell you like interesting stuff and also tell you about every scene in yeah. the movie. So we're still going to do diegesis so you remember the beats of the movie. I think Fargo, most people will remember vividly. but It's a simple film. Yeah. Um, and it's fairly simple. But we are going to try and like condense and be faster and just do a little more effort of like later in pedagogy if we're referencing a particular scene, we'll say... Oh, we didn't mention this in Diage. It's this scene. You remember this scene. Mm. Um, we do recommend, unlike Frame Rate, where I think you can listen to Frame Rate and be like, that movie sounds good. Maybe I'll watch it. You should see these before you listen. Yeah. Would you agree? I totally do. Let's hop into it. Mm. Fargo, as the opening crawl says, is a true story. Ah, <laughs> uh, they're, they're trolling. The events depicted in this film took place in Minnesota in 1987. At the request of the survivors, the names have been changed out of respect for the dead. The rest has been told exactly as it occurred. Mm. Even stuff that there were no witnesses to. So how could they know? Because it wasn't a true story. Because they're just fucking with you. Is this, well, I guess you'd argue the War of the Worlds radio play might be the first meta trick on the audience like this. But in my mind in film, this is the first bold example of them going like, we could just say that, right? We could just lie. Well, it's this not was, a law. This is intentional. Uh, the War of the Worlds one was unintentional. People just... It, oh, he didn't know that was going to happen? No, people just tuned in <laughs> and thought it was... Because how often are you like... Turn on the radio, what's happening in the world? No one expects a book to be read. Well, it's like when you saw that, there used to be that movie that was just a train coming out at the audience and people would duck reflexively. That's the Great Train Robbery, yeah. yeah. They have that shot. So it makes sense that if you tune in and it's the first time anyone's done this trick mm-hmm. and you hear a newscaster voice going, no, for real, the Martians are here now. Yeah. They're shooting at your house. You're like... Really? Really? <laughs> yeah. But this My is, house? This is super intentional, so I think it deserves a lot of credit. Oh, yeah. They're just fucking with you because they... I think they were actually doing it for, like, not, like, snicker, snicker, you know, like, <laughs> he, 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 reasons. It, it's it's more, not a South Park maneuver. It's yeah. yeah, I think they actually thought that it was, like, people probably, like have an emotional issue with the movie if they believe this. So and that's, let's lie. That's what I admire and I'm like, you sons of bitches. Because no one can ever do it again with the same impact right. as the first time. Right. But they realize that we're writing a true crime story. Why not let people believe it really happened? It adds mm. an emotional dimension. It does, because I think of any like like a crime anthology or something like that, if you just pick one story, like season one of True Detective. Yeah. And if you told me this is a true story, I would be like, holy oh, fuck. shit. You know, like, well, especially because it would be a pizza gate, essentially, because yeah. all the senators are in a pedophile yeah, ring. In Carcosa. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Nope. That's the most delicious right. pizza. That's a different episode. Yeah. But Carcosa's nothing. That's what sucks about that show. The Yellow King. It's just some sticks and yeah. a slow man. All right. Anyway, it's back, a slow to, man. back to Fargo. It's a slow, man. slow man playing with sticks. Um. The winter of 1987. Okay, let's get to the elevator pitch. What is this fucking movie? It's a murder. It's a like ridiculous crime, self-kidnapping, murdered thing. I think it's about... I think the movie is about uh, people trying to expand beyond their means who are unhappy with their life and trying to grab... A, and in the case of Jerry, who's played by William H. Macy, 
trying to get enough money so that he can get the bigger house, the bigger. Okay. He you swerved this plot. You swerved toward pedagogy real hard. I'm not. I but don't you care. saved it. I don't care anymore. Okay. <laughs> I, I'm just. I'm on tilt at this point. Uh, but yeah, he basically he's a sales manager at an Oldsmobile dealership in Minneapolis. There's an investment in a parking structure that he thinks will be lucrative. Right. And he wants to get in on the ground floor, but he doesn't have the capital. But he also owes money. I don't think he does. I thought he did. Which makes him more of a piece of shit. I, I right. really don't think he does. Oh, okay. I think he just, his father-in-law is a real hard ass who's rich. Mm. He married into this family. It's implied for the money, but he doesn't get any because his father-in-law doesn't respect him. Right. This is a way to extort Wade. his father-in-law, Wade. Yeah. Uh, everyone in the cast kills it. It's like a play. Yeah. Um, into giving him a loan. Right. And so he hatches this plan to get these two guys that he hears from Shep, who's yeah. another guy that he knows from, the, he's a, basically a mechanic at the uh, dealership, uh, to get these two guys who essentially will are kidnappers for hire. And uh, that's Buscemi and... Uh, Carl Hungus. Carl Hungus. <laughs> uh, I feel Stormer. bad because he's yeah. a Cohen regular and he always shows a lot of versatility. And he wants to pay, like, so for a car and $80,000... Kidnap his wife. A tan Sierra. A tan Sierra. <laughs> kidnap his wife in order, even though it's all fake, in order to get the ransom money from Wade. Right. And then, because who's rich? So once he gets that, then, you know, he's fucking easy street. That's the plan. Right. And so he's willing to threaten his life and marriage. And of course, his, and his son's m- like psyche. Yeah. He, they have a son. Yeah. Who this is going to be traumatic to. To, <laughs> ma- to make himself feel like he's a bigger man. I think. That he has control of his life. Yeah. That he can best his father-in-law. Anything. That he's important. That seems to be the motivation. When he's a sniveling car dealer. Like, yeah. one of the best scenes is he has to sit there. We're a very polite Minnesotan. Mm-hmm. Goes like, I told you I didn't want the true coat. You lied to my face. Yeah. You're a bald-faced liar. You're, you're, a, you're a fucking liar. What's crazy? <laughs> and he's got to smile and take it. So I think in the rest of his life, he's like, no, secretly, I'm the puppet master. I'm going to, like, win. Right. But he's fucking pathetic. He's so, it's the part William H. Macy was born to play, yeah. in my opinion. It's between this and Magnolia, like, when his teeth are knocked out. Another pathetic That character. I'm just like, oh, man, Macy... Although in Magnolia, when he says, I just have, I have so much love, love to, to give, give and yeah. there's nowhere to put it, you really feel for him. Jerry Lundegaard is it's a just, piece of shit. Yeah, there's yeah. very little catharsis for him. Um, you can sympathize with feeling overwhelmed and scared, but he takes steps that no normal person would take to address that. <laughs> Here's one of my favorite parts of the film. I don't know another film that's quite like it in this way. Uh, the main character or what we'd call like the A arc, uh, comes in at like 33 minutes. Yes. I just realized that for the first time on this watch. So he's going to talk Francis about McDormand the and divine Marge. Francis McDormand. Oh my God. Who I believe it. did win the Oscar for this film. She is, here's, this is an important question. Is she the main character? I would argue that this film just has a non-traditional structure. Yeah, it's... But she yeah. steals the show and everyone feels that she's the main character. She, it's... Uh, I would argue that she's... Um, it's a good point because uh, we do see scenes much like a book where it's like, all of a sudden it's written by the perspective of this character. That occurs multiple times in this movie with different people. It even happens with Buscemi. There, yeah, there's even scenes uh, where, where you're, you're like... like 
now we're you're with, with him. And yeah. he's alone, so I guess we identify uh, with him. <laughs> but I would say that she gets the protagonist nod from me because she's the only one who is an active participant against every, everything else happening in the movie. Like, she's the one who, if you take her out of the picture, everyone is just fucking up and, like, having external influences, like, people shooting them, people right. doing... like. I don't know. It's not very cut and dry because one can argue that between Buscemi and uh, like uh, Stormari. Yeah, they have their own thing. But with Macy, like that whole interaction, that's like a whole movie itself. Right. I would call Stormari and Buscemi one locus of the film. Right. Uh, Macy one and McDormand one. Right. There's like three main characters. She's the active agent. That's for sure. She's the most active agent because she's she's the law. So she's, she's and uh, she's the pregnant, mild mannered, polite yeah. law. Uh, my favorite, my favorite thing about them is their introduction, and by them I mean Margin Norm, uh, Norm played by John Carroll Lynch, who's also uh, the dad from Pete and Pete, uh, yeah, and also uh, and the Zodiac Killer in Zodiac, Zodiac which killer. is bizarre. Uh, <laughs> every scene that they're in in the movie, they're either laying down like together, they're mm-hmm. on the phone, laying down, or eating. Yeah. And he brings her lunch and shit. It's, yeah. it's fucking... Okay. It's endearing. It's adorable as shit in anyone who sees the movie. Like, this movie is made by the fact that the cop component of this crime drama is just a nice person <laughs> with yeah. an adorable marriage she's that like, you love. She's like a... And a, here's the thing. Is she's There's like nothing an, movie cop about her. She's an above average cop. She's like... She's perceptive as shit. Yeah. She's she knows what's up, but she's not doing anything that is like, oh my god, like mm-hmm. that's super cop detective work. She's just relentlessly following through with the procedure of law. Yeah, you know, like she's just dealing out justice. They're just all fucking up so bad that right. it just makes it seem like easy. like the great scene where she's interviewing Macy. And she doesn't know he's guilty, but he can tell she's considering it. Yeah. So he like orchestrates her reason to just drive away. Yeah. And I love that in any other cop movie, there would be a chase and shootout. Right. But she does the thing a real cop would do and just goes, he's fleeing the interview. He's fleeing the scene of the interview. Yeah. And calls other cops to catch him, which is what happens in real life. That's, yeah. Yeah. Uh, I love that in that opening scene with Norm and uh, with Norm and Marge, he says three times, I'll fix you some eggs. (laughs) And uh, she's got to go investigate the scene of a brutal double murder. Did you notice that? (laughs) And so, and here's this other wonderful little like, Norm has this like he's an artist, he's a painter, and his, his B plot is and delightful. B plot is essentially he wants to get his artwork on a stamp. There's a contest. Yeah. There's a contest, <laughs> which he ends up not winning. Up, he gets second place. He gets second place, and they're like, "That's good enough." And he's depressed about it. And Margie's like, "No, Norm, you know we're doing pretty good." Norm. Yeah, and we'll talk <laughs> about that more when we talk about the meaning. Well, that's of the, the film. final moments. So we'll come back. I I want to something that it keeps coming back that I got in this viewing is that if you look at their house, it's full of birds. I think he draws birds. That's what he paints. You see him painting. Yeah. So it's just, there's bird statues and shit everywhere. It's very Americana, very white person. Uh, and the only other house that we see as like intimately is, um, Jerry and Jean's house. Right. Jean Jean is Jerry's wife. Jerry's wife is kidnapped. Um, the victim. They're full of pigs and trophies. Oh, 
That's a good observation. Yeah. One point for Abe. <laughs> I'll take the point. <laughs> All right, let's just keep keep going. Yeah, so basically, Jerry hires these dudes to kidnap his wife because he wants money from his father-in-law to invest in a parking structure. Yeah. It's complex, but you can encapsulate it in one sentence. Um, then it's it's just a true Greek tragedy of like things going pathetically wrong that from feel like the a punch in the gut. The, the moment she's kidnapped, it's all... The gr- moment she's kidnapped, a cop pulls them over for not having registration. They shoot the cop in the head. Yeah. While they're burying the body, other people see them, yeah. so they murder the whole family. Uh, <laughs> poor Brainerd. Brainerd? Brainerd. Brainerd is that yeah. town, yeah. Which made me wonder, because uh, most of it takes place in Brainerd. The capture happens in Fargo. Yeah. Do you think it's called Fargo because it's about how far people will go? No, I think no, that, is I, that I, stupid. I, uh, I can't. <laughs> I can't back this up with where I remember reading it. But okay. they just, when they were asked why didn't they call it like Brainerd, Brainerd, uh, they just said like Fargo's. Uh, we like that name better. That's how do they get away with this shit? Because, because Fargo is a minor, minor location. Because in the their film. job is to make films, not to make great titles. So, like, Fargo rolls off the tongue better than Brainerd. They're yeah. just like, yeah. All right, fuck them. But anyway, <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. Um, but also, the part I love is then in Jerry's plot line, he goes uh, to his father in law, who's like, I had my guy Stan Grossman look at it, which was a formality just to get jerry to shut up about it and he was like actually he says the deal sounds pretty good so you know we're gonna go ahead with it and jerry's like what do you mean this was my deal and they're like no we're gonna give you a 10 percent finder's fee and invest in it ourselves because it's a good investment why would i give you the money for nothing and he's like you know because i'm your son-in-law and he's Mm -hmm. like i'm not a charity jerry so i took your idea i'm doing it fuck off Right, I'll give you a finder's fee. Right, uh, which leads tells- to my favorite shot in the movie, uh-huh. the high, wide, and stupid shot mm-hmm. of the perfect grid of planters with bare trees oh, yeah. and a white void. Just a white void. They, at first, I was like, what is this a shot of? I know it's snow, but what is it? And it's Jerry walking to his car, the only car in the parking lot, to scrape the ice off of his windshield and fucking pull a Walter White and like, right. freak out. Right. It's so good. Um, so anyway, we got the kidnapping. Jerry is more impotent and yet therefore driven to get something to work than ever. Uh, and our criminals, Buscemi and Stormare, have her in a cabin in the woods. While Francis McDormand is slowly closing in on them through a series of adventures uh, that I don't think we need to unpack. We'll unpack them in pedagogy. Sure. So Buscemi goes to pick up the ransom. He expects Macy, but Macy's father-in-law, Wade, is such a piece of shit that he's like, it's my million dollars. I'll deliver it myself. Buscemi's like, who the fuck are you, old man? Where's Macy? Because, of course, he's expecting to deal with someone who knows this is all fake. Like, he doesn't want some bullshit to go down. Some bullshit goes down. He shoots Wade, takes the money. As he dies, Wade shoots him in the face. So the guy in the uh, ticket-taking booth sees that he's injured, so he shoots that guy in the head. Mm-hmm. He gets home to find that Peter Stormari has shot their kidnapping victim in the head. Uh, but before, remember, he, he looks and finds the money. Oh, yeah. And he puts, he, like, steals some. He steals the vast like he majority. hides it in his car. Or he hides it, he buries it, sorry. Because he's going to give the car to Stormare. You're right. And what William, we forgot or to Star mention, Mari. the last important link is... 
William H. Macy lied and upped the ransom to a million dollars because he's like, fuck my father-in-law. I'm going to say it's even more than it is and then keep a bunch. Then Wade takes him himself. Buscemi's like, holy shit, we expected 80 grand. It's a million. So he buries everything except 80 grand like a thief and then goes back to find that Stormari has shot the woman in the head. And he's like, well, that's weird, but also it doesn't really matter because I killed the guy anyway. I guess this is just done. It's wrapped up. Let's right. go our separate ways. Uh, and Peter Stormari goes, the car. We got the car. We have to split the car. And Buscemi goes, look, I got shot in the fucking face. Yeah. What do you want me to do? Cut the car in He half? has a million dollars also. Like, it's just crazy to me that they get oh, this little petty argument. It's amazing. But, so realistic. Uh, he exits and... Uh, After going like... For the first time ever. I'm taking the fucking Stormari card. Because yeah. Stormari is scary as fuck. He's an yeah. Anton Sugar prototype. He goes, fuck you, fuck yourself. I don't care. Come at me, bro. Go fuck yourself. So and does. leaves. <laughs> so you take it. <laughs> well, he kills Carl with an axe. <laughs> yes, with an axe. Uh, and, also echoes of And then uh, puts him in a reading. wood chipper. Puts him in a wood chipper. Maybe which, the most iconic scene. Which is, uh, and it, it's like, yeah, it's like a struggle how much he has to like put the bone As it through. it would be. You know, you just hear it because uh, you you actually don't see most of it. You only see like a, a the leg legs. going in. Uh, but what but is he, it's to You hide? hear it when Marge is coming up doing like, what's that sound? Yeah. Um, also, what's crazy to me is apparently it's to hide the body. By spreading it at a molecular level all over everything. Like, I don't think Peter Stormare is that bright as a criminal. No, no. And it, it's also like, well, this is just more meaning. Uh, well, we're so, so close. Yeah. Anyway, he runs across the field. Margie shoots him in the leg. She arrests him. She says, why'd you have to do all this awful shit? And it was such a nice day. He doesn't answer. Then he says... It was all the seven sins. I was reenacting the seven sins. And we have to meet in this desert location. No, no, no never mind. Never mind. Um, that's the end, right? Except Margie and Norm saying, like, I love you. We're doing good. Yeah, the North, North Dakota police arrest Jerry at a oh, hotel. Yeah. And Jerry Bismarck. Pathetic. Because he drove away. Yeah. The mastermind just like, uh, And uh, Marge. I, well, it ends with Marge shooting him in the leg, right? From like afar. She's also like kind yeah. of like a crack shot. But there's also, but there is a denouement after that. Yeah, which is that in... Her and Norm in bed. <laughs> uh, Norm, the painter, his mallard painting has been selected for the three cent postage stamp. Not like the 28 not cent. the five cent. Oh, one, okay. Or okay. whatever it is. Uh, which and, was first prize. And I love it because Marge reassures Norm that lots of people use three cent stamps. Like, it's like this... You know, actually, this is a good thing. Well, she's like, well, you know, whenever they raise the rate on postage, people need those three cents. Yeah, and then they it ends with them just just hardcore fucking. Yeah, well, I mean, they're they're gonna have a child in two months, and uh, that's it. That's Fargo. I mean, there's a few things we, you know, we uh, we left out Yanagita and stuff like that. That is more like. Tonal, like I think we'll dive into that now. Stuff with pedagogy because um, it's more about like they're little bells and whistles that kind of infuse meaning, yeah. but it isn't a part of the grander narrative. Yeah. So this is the analysis analysis part yeah. where we analyze my favorite part. Mm-hmm. You've made that painfully clear. <coughs> the best part. First thing I'll say is. 
Uh, and I guess this is more diegesis because it's part of the craft, but I just want to forestall your joy. St- yeah. But I want people to fucking focus on the fact that Carter Burwell wrote the score for Hudsucker and then wrote the score for this and how different they make you feel. And also that Hudsucker, the third act features a bunch of shots of snow and so does this and they're shot by the same team and how different snow feels. Mm. It's just incredible. The versatility. Like to have, all they do is change the lighting and the shots and the music and you're like either, oh, snow is angel blessings coming down from heaven (laughs) or why does anyone live here? Snow destroys all. Snow is the inevitable death of like the bones inside us. It's amazing how different Fargo feels from Hudson. Yeah, let's talk about snow a little bit in Fargo. Okay. Because um it's a it, character. I mean it's yeah, well, I mean they definitely made a meal out of it with like the poster and the cover and like uh the establishing shots in the movie, like everything. And I think at one point uh Joel Cohen said like the crazy cause they came from the Midwest. Uh, originally, they're from I think Minnesota. It's amazing how Even much we know about their Dakota. work and don't care about their personal lives, which it, I think they would appreciate. Doesn't, uh, yeah, it well, doesn't matter. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and what's crazy is, um, I think that this is like their love note, but also kind of a damning love note. Well, it's dark to, as shit. Yeah, but just to like the type of people that can exist in these like suburban areas. Cause I think Joel Cohen quoted like, it's like, what is Fargo? Fargo is like a, a sub- Siberian suburb or something like that. <laughs> like it, it's just that it's cold and relentless and it's full of people who are used to it, are used to it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And it, it's very interesting because it's, it's obviously the suburb part is the other part, which is that, um, like I was mentioning earlier in the podcast about how like they have like little trophies and pig statues in the Lundegaard home and yeah, in the Lundegaard home and like just very Americana, very like stuff that I like when I look back at my own life, I think about the shit that didn't make sense to me that my mom would do, you know, just like I'm going to buy like a Christmas ornament or like, why? Why are we doing this every Christmas? This is we're nonsense. Jewish, mom. Yeah, we we don't we don't really care about this. Why do you care about it? Well, it's just the thing you do. That's just uh-huh. it's been a tradition. So these are very traditional people, um, and I think that with the reason I think snow is amazing is that you can't like you you really made me think about it when you talked about the wood chipper, uh, how it just. It stains it just the It stains red. everything. It's like you couldn't be more obvious with a right. body. <laughs> and it's almost like there's a natural state of snow and there's a natural state of uh, Brainerd. Like it's this white, absolutely carpeted with whiteness. Mm. Uh, and then... As Minnesota is. As Minnesota Demographically. Is. And, then, uh, and then this like this series of events that are all... <clears throat> created by just like this half hatch plot of someone who's I people like who are either greedy yeah. <laughs> or you know just this this plan uh by Macy that it's just like a stupid plan but it's, it's not com- like glaringly stupid it's like an average plan it's not like <laughs> one of the right? yeah it, like it is greed but it's not like um 
he's not trying to hurt anybody. He says it a few times, you know, in the movie. If you discount like, psychological he, trauma. But he's obviously just completely misled. Yeah. Um, but more than anything, he just doesn't know how to do this. He's just not good And at he's it. just sad. <laughs> yeah. He's just sad because he just wants a better lot in life. Right. And uh, he just stains the entire town with this bullshit. And now you made me realize the red uh, window scraper that Buscemi stabs in the ground and Mark where he buried his treasure. Very similar to the shot of the blood spray coming out of the wood right. chipper on the snow. That's really cool, too. Yeah, it's kind of... I'm sure that that was intentional, even though the Coen brothers would never say it was. Yeah, I feel like just to get my thesis out so that things can support that rather than trying to build to it, one, the main takeaway for me that I love about it, um, and I think it is underscored by Francis McDormand's last line to Peter Stormare, uh, uh, your buddy and that w- poor woman and those two people up in Brainerd listing all the people he killed. Mm-hmm. And it was such a nice day. And it's not. It's not a nice day. It's not a nice day. It's a frozen, horrible day. But for but them, it's a nice day. That's my point, is I think the location shows the resiliency of these people who are just average people. And it shows how an average person can withstand shocking amounts of evil and to overcome evil, even shocking evil. Like when Buscemi gets back and Stormari has just shot her in the head because she wouldn't stop screaming is what he says. We've reached the level of like, man, this guy's fucking evil. And to overcome that evil, all you need is a bunch of mundane acts of kindness that anyone could do like the guy who the who she interviews or a different cop interviews who's like yeah there was this funny looking guy bragging you know he said i uh, the last guy who bugged me you know he's six feet underground you know and i said oh yeah and he said you know what i mean and i said well it sounds like it didn't go too good for him and he said yeah it didn't he's dead now anyway i'm staying up at the lake so it's like (laughs) A witness who's an average person reporting something obviously suspicious to the police. Francis McDormand taking the steps you'd hope an average. So like the beauty of mundane goodness, the fact that I actually think Fargo's a really hopeful movie, which I think people will disagree with me on. No, I totally. Well, I agree. With I you. think it's about that. Damn, it can be a cold ass winter, but if the bulk of people just exhibit common courtesy and like basic decency, we'll make it through. Right. Because evil people ruin themselves. I Yeah, I would argue that it's kind of my read because the, the line that I thought of, or not like the line, but like the way that I conceived of it, which is much in the same way that you are obviously right now as well, uh, there's nothing wrong with second place. Yeah. Like that is the movie. Like just the idea that like there's no blueprint to life. There's nothing that is... Ex- asking you to have the biggest house, the most money... Obviously, arguably, some of these people are just like hate their life so much uh, that they they just they need the money to, so that they're it's like so I can get out of this fucking town or my something life will like be that. perfect. If Whatever I get the money, yeah. But um, I think that the Coen Brothers are low key asking like, well, why? Maybe it's not just that suddenly happened to you. Maybe you made a series of decisions earlier in your life because of your bias to try to want to be like number one that led you down to this path because the only people who get away with everything in terms of like are happy at the end, the thing that they're trying, they set out to do at the beginning of the film or their arc is completed. 
uh, is ultimately like the cops, like the the rigid order of and Norm. Norm's and Norm, arc is complete, arc. and they're just fixing eggs. Very few other arcs yeah. are completed. His yeah, heads. everyone else gets <laughs> shot, killed, like put in Suddenly, jail, like in the yeah. midst of their arc. Yeah, uh, <laughs> Siberia with family restaurants. That's what he called it. Ah, that's what he called Fargo. Uh, and or the Brainerd, color, I guess. Uh, well, that's talking about Minnesota, which is where the sure. colors are from originally. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I would love native North Dakotans and Minnesotans to write in and give us insight into the dialect. Because, you know, with um, Raising Arizona, very famously, everyone in Arizona said, like, no one sounds like this in Arizona. And I I wonder if that's true of Minnesota. Because I know, for everyone I know, the way they talk in Fargo is now how we assume people in Minnesota talk. And I'm wondering right. how accurate it is. Right. Because Oof I do. Yeah. Oh, that's a rough one. Oh, yeah. Uh, it's also that. You all right, Margie? I'm okay. Just got to puke. Yeah, just got to puke. <laughs> uh, yeah, I think I would be interested to know that as well because I don't know that many Minnesotians. Is that Minnesotians. Minnesotians. Uh, but the ones that I do know have normal like California non-accents. Yeah. So um, there's that. Uh, I love that uh, just another random piece of trivia that makes me happy when the Coen brothers do it. It's reminiscent of like the, this is a true story. Uh, there's a line, uh, there's a line in the film, 30 minutes and we wrap this up is said literally on the 30 minutes left in the movie. Oh, really? Yeah. 30 minutes and we wrap literally, this up. Literally, like, it's like down to, like, the second. That's Buscemi, right? Yeah, it's Buscemi. Fuck you, Jerry. You meet me here. Yeah. 30 minutes and, and we wrap, wrap this up. up. And That's that, awesome. It's so fucking awesome. <laughs> and it's just like, why? Can we just... Why would you do that? Why would you do that? Can we just talk about Buscemi and Stormari as a duo who are totally driven by... Like, they're Laurel and Hardy if they murdered innocent people. I want to give you a fact be just uh-huh. just throw in your head because i know exactly what you're gonna say uh peter stormari has 18 lines of dialogue in the oh entire movie God. and never says more than a, like a, a single complete sentence she at one time stop you know, shrieking yeah he only says like time <laughs> like three or four times those. he I'm actually going. says a sentence it's usually just a phrase by comparison carl buscemi has 150 lines of dialogue because <laughs> nice. he's just constantly talking. It's a fucking fount of conversation over here, buddy. Um, I love that he kind of... There's overlap with his beatnik dialect from Hudsucker Proxy. Like, he's still like a cool cat, man. <laughs> a yeah. little bit. Like, he's trying... Yeah, yeah, that's true. That's true. I didn't even think of that. But it. they are... Uh, so, yeah, uh, Buscemi is Carl <laughs> Showalter. Which I only find interesting because Michael Showalter is an idol of mine. I'm sure they didn't do that intentionally. But, right. And then uh, Peter Stormari's character, his name is Gair Grimsrud, <laughs> which is a real Anton Chigurh status name. Yeah. Gair Grimsrud. Uh, he's Swedish? In say. this? Or the actor? The actor. Because he's done multiple accents in multiple he did uh, the Cohen ju- he films. Did, I mean, we're going to talk next he's about be the one of the nihilists. Yeah. So <laughs> I never knew what... Do you know what nationality he's supposed to be in Fargo? I think he's supposed to be what he actually is. Because the accent is like Finnish, like... He says so little, it's hard to get a fix on. <laughs> yeah, it's like... It's, I need ongoing. It, it's... It, it goes into Eastern European sometimes, but I think it's because he's like, 
he's thuggish and yeah. like kind of just like there's a Russian lilt that to it makes sometimes. you feel okay. think of p- people that typically but play it's Russian. Swedish. Okay, like you think of John Wick and it's like I thought Russian. of Vigo and yeah, yeah, Russian promises, but I don't Eastern think he's promises. supposed to be Russian. Okay, uh, so speaking of lines, Stormare's first Gustafsson line is like a. Norwegian Gustafsson Gustafsson That's Harvey Prenell Since I'm at this point In my notes And we want to give due credit And uh, Kristen Rudrud As Jean Lundegaard I think that's all The primary cast (laughs) Um, But Dude The the very first scene Which is uh, Well the very first shot Okay I'm gonna do First shot And first scene Real quick First shot is pure white, fade from white, which you realize is a snowstorm. Mm. And it's this amazing, trippy, like, reality comes into existence just by focusing. It's truly magical. Like, the first thing your brain recognizes is the outline of a bird, then that there are car headlights, then that there are telephone poles, and you're like, oh, it's a road, that must be snow. And then the car pulls over the ridge just as the score fucking blasts. Mm-hmm. And it says Fargo. Actually, I think it says uh, Brainerd, North Dakota or something. Or Fargo, North Dakota. And it turns out it's Macy towing the Tan Sierra. But in the scene where he first meets with them and negotiates the kidnapping, I feel like you get this amazing Laurel and Hardy vibe from the two of them. And this is Stormare's first line. Is uh, Jerry says, well, I kind of I want my own wife kidnapped. And it's this much. And he goes, but we agreed on this much. I'm not going to debate you, Jerry. This is Buscemi. Yeah. And Jerry goes, oh, okay. <laughs> and he goes, I'm not going to sit here and debate. You, and he goes, but, but just let me understand this. You want your own wife kidnapped? Yeah. So why don't you ask your father-in-law for the money? And Stormari says, or your fucking wife, you know. <laughs> yeah, Jerry. Or your fucking wife, Jerry. <laughs> like... It's almost a Rick and Morty thing. Yeah, yeah. going on. <laughs> like they love it. I also love it. Yeah, it, you nailed it with the Laurel and Hardy thing because it's uh, there's <laughs> he is terrifying. Uh, Stormari, yeah. yeah, and Buscemi is just not. Except when he has a gun. That's it. Yeah, it's like a, it's like if this was a Disney film, it would be like. A terrifying bear and a little tiny it's mouse. Timon and Pumbaa. Yeah, it's Timon and Pumbaa. <laughs> wow, I want some fan art of Timon and Pumbaa with, with dialogue. Pumbaa shooting a cop in the head and Timon freaking the fuck out in the driver's seat. <laughs> and then later putting him in a wood chipper. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Nathan Lane. Um, oh, fun fact. My, uh, the girl, the prostitute who Buscemi has sex with. Really? Is was like my acting mentor at UCSD. Really? Yeah, yeah. I won't say her name in case she doesn't want me to. Well, she's in the credits. But she's a UCSD professor. It's a non diploma in the credits. Oh, but she's the one who says she gets the choice line. She gets to say, "He was a little guy, kind of funny looking." Oh yeah, in any particular way? No, just generally funny just looking. Generally funny looking. <laughs> she taught me how to act. <laughs> yeah, it's. Uh, I love that scene too because it's just it shows. When I was watching that scene, all I all I can think of is uh, like when cops have to deal with the fact that they're trying to find one thing out. Like they have uh-huh. one goal, whether or not someone was somewhere at or did time the thing or, or something. Not, like that. Yeah. And people give all this random flooding of nonsense just, mm-hmm. just fire hydrant of details that don't 
could possibly matter, but don't usually to mm -hmm. the investigation. And most film noirs are based on there's that one detail that they weren't thinking about that then became relevant and later. You know, because the detective looks into the distance and a close up happens. There is none of that in so this movie. So you're like, that broken shell is important. None yeah. of that in this movie. <laughs> she just sticks to, like, I'm going to, where is the car? I'm going to where the address <laughs> they is. They said it was. I arrived. There's someone here. I'll ask them questions. <laughs> They're murdering <laughs> yeah. someone. Yeah. Stop it. Yeah. You know, everything is just very single note. Easy. But they do. They take great lengths to show that. And again, it's, I think, two things about that hammer home, the mundanity. You're talking about the prostitute scene. Right. And what I love about that scene is it hard cuts from them on the brink of orgasming to... In bed watching a late night TV show. Right. It like omits. It's like, now it's mundane. <laughs> yeah. they Coen brothers love that they shit love that, on yeah. their dramas. Like when they're not doing comedy, they can't like help. Even though I would say that's a comedic beat a little bit. It's like, darkly it, comedic. It's darkly comedic. Because you're watching murderers have sex with prostitutes. It doesn't right. feel like good. <laughs> but th that it is one of the things that I do think the Coen brothers do get on a soapbox a little bit is that they do this um, thing where, which I love and I agree with, but they, they get a little hi-hat with sure, it. Sure, which is why. To use Miller's Crossing yep. reference. Uh, they, uh, they love to show, like, it's like they can't be happy. It's like the second that they're like, look at this beautiful flower. Like, let's just make this film a flower by the Coen right. brothers. And it's just like, they shoot it really well and it's a beautiful flower and then they're like, yeah, but someone comes thinking in about it, it or something. Kind of yeah. fuck this flower. And then <laughs> yeah. But this flower's still good. Like they have to do the wave. They have to do the yes. up, down, up, or the down, up, down. And I've noticed actually, and maybe it's cause we are cynical and nihilistic. Right. Or we or on some level we suspect that none of this shit means anything and right. and we're obsessed with that. What if that's true? But I don't want to speak for you, but I certainly see this in a lot of the art that's my favorite. Like The Simpsons, if I you agree. talk to com comedy writers, one of the like five truly innovative things it brought to comedy writing for TV, and they even got to the point, of course they did, where they they exposit about this on The Simpsons. There's right. a Simpsons episode where one of the special guests goes... This is the point in the show where we do something that has heart. But of course, next we have to cut the treacle with something like truly cynical mm -hmm. so that you know that we care, but we don't really care. So you can feel both at the same time. And I'm like, yeah, the Coens do that too. Right. Just a totally different skin, totally different property. Yeah. But that's, they like the wave. They can show you the beauty of like, oh, you found your true love. You know, later you'll f have a horrible fight. Like they can't not mention. Which is what this movie Life, does yeah. with the American dream. So the yes. idea is that Preach. In, some, <laughs> in, in some cases, because we said it, like it's misleadingly beautiful. Uh, and I think it's, it's all in like going back to when we're talking about one house is full of trophies and pig statues. The other house is full of birds. They're both the American dream. The American dream is greed and, and status and disgusting like infatuation with that but it's also freedom and bird stuff like the <laughs> you know flight. like the flight and like amazing yeah. soaring like 
uh, elegance. Like it's all these different things, and, and the Coen a strong brothers are family just, unit, like a loving right. couple that are about to have their first child, versus a family that's right. falling apart. So if yeah. we were to if we were to go with like Ezra Pound and uh, what he says about what the uh, artist does, which is just point at things, mm-hmm. uh, I feel like the Coen brothers are unique, or the, one of the reasons I really love them is that they have both hands out and they're pointing at two different things all the time, and the two things usually undermine each other. Yeah. They're like, isn't that so true over here though we out <laughs> you're like Timon now i doubt Puma. the first thing yeah yeah oh you were laughing i was just doing my spiel and you were looking at like, i'm sorry my mind my eyes are lit upon that's uh it's just a fountain of conversation man that's a geyser i mean woo daddy you know <laughs> stand back man you know what total silence two can play at that game smart guy see how you like it Total silence. silence. <laughs> you can't even be silent. Like no. Uh, and I mean uh, that's a Looney Tunes joke, but they yeah. do that a lot. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and there's no rhyme or reason, no methodology for why people are. That's one another thing about um, a lot of artists that are not the Coen Brothers. No, you're like, gonna, it's Buscemi. I wrote down too many Buscemi lines. He's just for, because it's the way is the way he undermines his own gravitas. Uh, All right, just you know, keep still back there later, or else we're gonna have to, you know, shoot you. <laughs> like that's such a good line. I just love. I just want to <laughs> transmute to the listeners that like there's it's happened three times and it's the same like fucking cycle, which is I start talking, Swaim listens for a while, nods. His eyes glaze over and he like looks at something else, and my nose. lands on the computer, and then starts laughing to himself about oh. something that Buscemi said. Uh, I deleted him also. We're no, it's fine. It's fine. I I think it's endearing <laughs> as fuck. I think you're you're a real norm right now. Uh, we we haven't talked about Yanagita. What does that mean? Yeah, I was gonna say. Speaking of stuff that might not mean anything, that's the beat I'm still confused by. Unless it's more mundanity, but like. So just to get it out of the way, and then I love your analysis first, the encapsulation, in case you forget, is in the midst of all this craziness, uh, Margie gets contacted by an old high school friend, Mike Yanagita, who says, would you like to have lunch? I'm in the area. Mm. Uh, they have lunch. He ends up saying his wife died of leukemia a few years ago, and he's right. been really sad ever since, and he thought maybe she was single now. And she says, no, I'm married to Norm. And he starts crying and says, I'm just so lonely and you were always such a nice lady. And she's like, okay, sorry. Gotta go. This is weird. And then she hears from his, uh, her friend. Yeah. On the phone phone call. He never had a wife. That was just a girl he was obsessed with in high school. Right. And he's just some crazy weird dude. Yeah. What's the point of that? What, how does it inform Uh, the story? I think it's, I think, um, I mean, do you have, do you want to I don't offer? have any. You don't have I any? don't know. Oh, wow. I thought, I, I think it's cut, more of the same. I would cut the, the art from the movie. I love it. Okay. Because uh, <laughs> what I think it means is that it deals, it's entirely deals with uh, who Marge is and the fact that she's pregnant as well. Uh, those two aspects about her mean that she's confident in her choices that she has made in her life. Now, with Mike, he isn't. In fact, he's a liar, and he does these sins that are born out of, like, hubris, like most other people in the movie. So it's to say that we do these sins, and these sins are not necessarily 
explicit to criminals because all of our criminals do this. And the reason that Mike yeah. does it is that, yes, he's a liar. Yes, he's a creep. He's lying to hit on an eight-month pregnant married woman, but that's not a crime. He didn't know sucks. she was pregnant. <laughs> yeah. She didn't know. And it's just this weird artifact about like people moving on with their lives and just things not you know like working out the way that people anticipated and having expectations like i don't know like his expectation was that he was going to live with this woman uh for like the rest of his life and then when she broke up with him because he was you know full of neuroses i, or I too assume intense, or yeah. too intense uh i mean they they mentioned his creepiness and like the fact that he stopped she her. ended up getting a restraining and that's why i went him, to yeah. he went to the twins so it's like they weren't even married right they were just no it's a chick in high school he was obsessed yeah, with to yeah a creepy degree, so he's yeah. just that he now says he was married to and <clears> she's dead right <laughs> right yeah and so far i mean it could be I think that if they wanted to make him a sinful person, they would have included that like he had there was restraining orders and shit mm. like that. Like he had done stuff. He was obsessed and he was creepy and he was fucked up, which is all true, but he hasn't actually like broken the law. Yeah, he's pathetic like Jerry. Right? He doesn't yeah. seem like he would break the law. And that's to me important to show that side to Marge because mm. Marge is the law. She is Marge is the law. Marge is the law. <laughs> she's basically like she, and she isn't even she's just a vessel for like essentially what society and America Basic, has said like you reason, can't and can't do. You can't feed this guy in yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so she doesn't like take like I don't know. I feel like cuz I feel like if I was her because I'm not as level-headed as she is in this movie, I would be like, I would immediately like call Mike and be like, what the fuck? Like, you fucking piece of shit. You lied to me? Stay away from me. I do what she did, which is just... That's weird. And then move on. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. But that's what... So that's what I think that arc is for. It's true. it, It doesn't take that much of a movie, but for such a lean movie, it does feel like it's a big beat because it takes up a whole lengthy scene yeah. uh but that's really it it's like two phone calls and like less than three minute scene yeah lunch scene yeah yeah because i think it's important that like you said it's mundane but they do go out of their way to show that margie's competence is above average for all the people around her yes at least very much like so. she has lou her deputy the who says we yeah, I already put out an APB for a plate reading DLR and then any sequence of numbers because I figured he was writing DLR and then got shot. The state trooper, and she says, "Can't say I agree a hundred percent with your police work there, Lou." Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, I think we're looking for a car that has dealer plates. Oh jeez. Oh jeez. And what I love is. He's obviously devastated. Like mm-hmm. he knows he did a bad cop job. Right. And she saves the cat. She's like, Doesn't can't let him be face. sad. No, yeah. she makes a joke to break the tension. Say, Lou, you hear the one about the guy who couldn't afford vanity plates, so he changed his name to 3JLR404. And Lou is still sad, but he goes, yeah, yeah, that's a good one. <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah, it's, it's, they're all so nice to each other. It's this cordial kind of agreement that just be nice to one another, which is <laughs> just mundane. Nice. Yeah. Just love each other. It's super mundane, and it like it it definitely feels like 
it's a circus or something. Like you, you feel like you wake up one day and you're going to be Willie Loman, but also it does work. Yeah. Like I feel Vonnegut like that's what the said Coen the same, like, brothers are saying. And I, one of the through lines of all of Vonnegut's writing is the same thing. Right. We don't need like extraordinary love. We just need common decency and like politeness and mm-hmm. everything would be fine. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right. And yes, sometimes it makes you want to throw, you know, drive your head through a wall because mm-hmm. you're just like, just stop. What just stop being so goddamn nice all the time? I'm not like we're all unhappy, but yeah, you need to look about why that unhappiness is in you. Yeah, I guess is one can extrapolate. Agreed. Same question about why did this scene exist? Because there's one other scene that I don't know why it's in there functionally. And the other <laughs> thing I'll say about Fargo is a lot of critics and folks I think consider it their best film, and I don't. Because there are other movies they have that nourish me even more. Like they have more chunks of goodness in the stew, I guess, as Carl Weathers would say. Goodness in the stew. But um, I think the reason this is rightly considered by critics is that it it may be the most flawless movie they've ever made. It's super taut. It's so tight and there's nothing to critique about it. It's perfect. But there's other movies they have that I would argue have more flaws, but at the same time, in spite of that, have more things that I love as well. And we'll get to that, but um, for a movie that's so flawless, I really like to hone in on like, well, why is this scene there then? And the other, only other one I thought that about is Buscemi out with a, an es- a sex worker again, but this time it's like from an escort service and he's taking her on a date. And they're seeing Jose Feliciano, who I love, right, right. Um, live in concert, which is cool. But uh, the full scene is he goes, so how long you been with the escort service? few months. Find that work uh, interesting, do you? Heck you talking about? Yeah. <laughs> and that's the end of the scene. Oh, and then it cuts to him having sex with her, and Shep comes in and beats the shit out of yeah, him with yeah, a belt. Yeah, yeah. I'm wondering why that scene at the concert, why didn't it just cut to him having sex with another woman, and Shep comes in and beats him with a belt? I think, well, I, I mean, I definitely have a theory. Okay. How much do the tickets cost to get into something like that? Well, the when's concert. It, when's it supposed to take place? I don't even remember. Is 87. Yeah. The number doesn't matter, but it's like, yeah. it's not a movie. It's higher than a movie. It's yeah, not, for sure. There's a transactional aspect about sex work, you know? And the escort is like obviously more expensive than the, Chicks he hooked right. up with and Brainerd. Why yeah. is he doing any of this at all? What is he trying to ah, do? It's showing what a bad criminal he is. He's flaunting his money, which is the worst thing he could be doing. Uh, I think it's, yeah, I mean, that's true. I think it's, once again, it's the motive for the biggest sin in the movie. And the big, because this oh, biggest sin in the wanting movie to is be Uber's a bigger man than he wanting is. Wanting to sh- flaunt it. Want, doing what you know, respect Wade does where he's like the criminals they think they can do this to me they think they can ransom me I'm gonna go down there with a gun and, and show call them, them a punk. Yeah. I'm a king fish <laughs> yeah. and then he di- he gets shot you right. know like so it's that's what everyone is doing who's on the although he does wing law. Buscemi to which he Buscemi's does, yeah. line is what is with you imbeciles? You fucking asshole. You fucking shot me. Ah. Uh, and then he gets put in a wood chipper <laughs> yeah. after being hit with an axe by a very terrifying <laughs> Kurt man. Yeah. Uh, that, so to me, that's what it is. Is it's, it's, He wants to be seen as a big man. And so he's taking an escort to what he thinks is 
like what he can afford. A, yeah. Uh, like a high, like a nice evening. Right. Uh, even Paying though a that's woman a, to be intimate with him because he could not get laid otherwise. Exactly. <laughs> so it comes down to he's he's unhappy with his life, but he's mimicking what he you know that happiness because here here's a man who would look at Norm Francis McDormand's husband. And be like, you just do paintings of mallards and you put them on stamps. And you get your wife And you lunch. can't even get it. And You're you pathetic. Ma- you yeah. pathetic. <laughs> even though Norm is fucking great. Having a great life. Like, Norm such is a great it. life. <laughs> yeah. His wife is fucking Francis McDormand. <laughs> yeah. Fucking killing it. Uh, so it's, I think that's why that scene exists. All right. That makes sense. And for what? Oh. For a little bit of money. There's more to life than a little money, you know. Exactly. Don't you know that? And here you are, and it's a beautiful day. <laughs> it's a beautiful. <laughs> and they day. pass the Paul Bunyan statue again. Um, I, I, that's one thing I wonder. I think it was. I it's think, something personal to the Coen Brothers. I think they knew it existed, and they like it, and they wanted it in the movie. I like think it, it's, it's just like, like a sight to see. Because I tried to do like the mental Tetris that is like a tall tale. Like what I is mean, it? an axe is about to come down. Everyone's yeah. under the threat of this looming blade. All this area was like it started with lumber. Is how you got money. Sure, and lumber but it can't. Trade. I don't think and it can matter. That no, much. I think it's just it's one of those. I think they uh, it, it it's pig stat it's pig statuettes and bird statuettes and bird it's all that Americana yeah. shit you know it's just like they look at it and they go like what the fuck because you you drive yeah. around and you like I grew up next to a town called Gilroy in the South Bay Garlic Festival and they like they put on their like Welcome to Gilroy garlic capital of the world and the town smells like garlic in the air yeah yeah and it's just like one of those things that when you drive by i love it it's lo- <laughs> it's lovely until you live there yeah 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 yeah. <laughs> garlic so, is one of the smells i could withstand the longest but there's no one smell i want to smell eternally all the it's time it's great yeah. it's great uh garlic but, is a good smell but like you know what i mean about the americana of it it's like yes. it's boasting right, right about right. this thing that seems mundane to the rest of us and and it's like I know why it's done. It's this tourism Effingham. kind of thing. Intersection of capital. What yeah. was it? Uh, no, no, no. The crossroads of industry. And this yeah. was like the town where we shot Kill Me Now that has like forty people. In I it. love it because crossroads like, of industry. My favorite part about it is that like the richest man in town was this, like the sign owner, the guy yeah, who run, the guy who put that sign. Yeah, out. we won't say who it was just because yeah. we don't need to. But it's just hilarious to me that. Well, what do we need a lot of? Well, you have like an Arby's and a McDonald's and two gas stations and just yeah. big roads everywhere, just roads. It's a crossroads. It's a crossroads. There's industry. Yeah. <laughs> and then someone was smart enough to think of, you know what you need? If you have roads, you yeah. need signs. And there's a lot of sh- darkness in whites, especially white suburban America. And we know that. We don't need to belabor that point. But I think Fargo does a good job of showing uh, that these tiny towns have a kind of mundane goodness that is powerful too yeah i think yeah and also fosters for the wrong type of person mm-hmm. an absolute hell right because uh these people want to be a they they want to be a big fish in a small pond and they want they also want the big pond too it's like that's the problem is that that's they so want both and they want all of it and they think they yeah. deserve it but they don't like this and there's other like stories I could name where the narrative is like the person who wants it all at all costs and like clawing their way to the top. And yet it's set in like Indianapolis and you're like, 
well, step one, move to New York City then. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, like you are doing a weird thing if you think you're going to conquer the whole game mm-hmm. from Fargo, Minnesota. What are you trying to do? Right. Like gauge your expectations to what your life is. Right. Um, but Jerry sadly could not. And he ends up <laughs> sobbing amazingly, getting dragged out by police, snorting and screaming. Um, I'm ready for how do you do that. I got some how do you do that. You are. Yeah, I can start. Uh, sure, you can start. Uh, I thought, so... Oh, what the Christ! It's it's not, uh, there's nothing real technologically interesting about this movie. Uh, Other than that everything is done so well. Well, you got the Deeks <laughs> at, uh, the cinem- as the cinematographer, and he's... I mean, he the the man just shoots naturalistic light like no one else. So yes, the lenses are good. Yes, the framing is perfect. Yes, the locations are wonderful. Uh, but there's nothing that is how do you do that? Uh, but I do think that the most interesting stuff is how they did it in terms of the writing of it. And like one of the things that jumped out at me is uh, Joel Cohn talking about how uh, referencing Stanley Kubrick's Clockwork Orange, because Steve Buscemi says at one point that he's in town for, quote, just a little of the old in and out, which is uh, Clockwork Orange. That's Uh, their slang for sex. Yeah. yeah. And uh, also Kubrick. Um, How long are you in town? Oh, I'm just in and then out. You when, know, in for a little in and out. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> smooth guy. Smooth, smooth guy. <laughs> uh, to reference Malcolm McDowell in that movie. Um, and then when our uh, our kidnappers are driving outside of Minneapolis, the song These Boots Are Made For Walking mm-hmm. uh, is on the radio, which is a reference to Full Metal Jacket, I think. Or at least that was also a song that played in Full Metal Jacket. Or Christopher Jacket. Walken's yeah. Special Boots. Uh, some shots during the kidnapping, like the breaking the door down in uh-huh. the bathroom. And what is with bathrooms and hiding in the shower coen brothers and like yeah the blood simple yeah and, well, hiding and, a, in the and gun related crimes it's the only thing where you're like yeah wow they're so versatile except they love 95 percent have a gun crime yeah that's the one thing they're that they all can't about escape. crimes yeah, and 30 yeah. percent of the movies have violence in bathrooms weird <laughs> uh but the breaking the door down in order to kidnap gene right uh feels like a tribute to the shining i think they just wanted to get to the uh image of a woman screaming wrapped in a shower curtain blindly falling down the stairs because that is a really disturbing image that's that's and it's awesome. This jumps a little bit back, but I, I also noticed that because that's horrifying and it's almost like the brutality of that event. Like it's one of the blinds you to the fact yeah. that later when they like take her to the cabin and they laugh about how funny it is that, that she's she trying to run away. Yeah. That she looks like a chicken a blind chicken. She's like darting in left and right her head and in, they know they'll and, just recover she's her got, whenever they want yeah because yeah. she's got something over her head like a bag, burlap bag yeah. or whatever and it's just like i know it's just because that's what you would do if you're a kidnapper you'd cover their head their head yeah but it just feels weird that like they also chose that moment for her the like, woman's face the to kidnapping. never be seen again you yeah mean the cohen's choice yeah it just it was i don't know what it means gene is an afterthought in the movie yeah she's handled yeah. like an object. I don't mean yes. like she's treated like a sexual object, but she's, she's just the MacGuffin. The kid, yeah, she's, she's just the, the victim. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that is interesting that the Coens decided to very quickly take her face away and never show you her face again. That's got to mean something. I bet we mm-hmm. stumbled on one. Like once she becomes kidnapped, 
Jerry has objectified her. He is turning her from a human he's, being into yeah, just a poker he's chip. He's literally taking away her agency and, and her humanity. He's a horrible, horrible yeah. man. <laughs> yeah. uh, he made that guy need Unglin. Yeah. Um, speaking of how do you do that, we rarely mention directing, but I just think it had to be. It's either Peter Stormare's choice, which would still count as a how do you do that. Uh, so it's either an acting choice or the Coens told him to do it. But either way, I think it's brilliant how Geyer, Peter Stormare, when he is at rest, his mouth is always slightly open. Yeah. That includes when he axes Buscemi in the snow. His mouth is hanging open. Mm-hmm. When he's watching soap operas, his mouth is hanging open. Yeah. And Shoving in other, cereal in his face. And when we see him in other Coen Brothers movies, that's not the case. So I just fucking love that detail. Uh, there's editing tricks that are like for other filmmakers out there that are just like, oh, fuck. Uh, the one that really jumps out at me in this film is how good uh, the Coen brothers are at continuity cuts. And what a continuity cut is a, a cut from one scene to another that either takes the same motion. Like, people recognize it from, like, Game of Thrones when Samuel Tar... Or, yeah, the, the Sam is, like... Samuel Tardis? Tar- Tarly. Uh, <laughs> the, the, he's, like, f- f- making food for the Citadel's, like... Uh, oh, Sam. Sam. I've only seen a few Game of Thrones episodes, yeah. but the guy who's clearly a ripoff of Sam from Lord of the Rings. Yeah, he's basically yeah. the same. Yeah, yeah. The, and Frodo is... Frodo's Jon Snow. Jon yeah. Snow, yeah. Uh, Jon Snow, Frodo. But he, there's a scene where that there's a whole montage that they build out of him making food that looks like shit. Uh-huh. Like, it's just like gruel. Just like fucking Sam did and when then, they hiked Mount Doom. And then he also <laughs> is the guy who like takes the shit from the chamber pots. And it's like this weird mixing to the point that it all just looks the same to him. Does he ever rap about potatoes? No. No, okay. Rap? <laughs> yeah. Potatoes. Potatoes. Boil them, roast them, stick them in a stew. Yeah, I, <laughs> he calls that was a, a little stinker. That was one a one point. percenter joke. Yeah. So there's like four people who will know what that's a reference to. And that one's for Potatoes. You. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, they, uh, they're king of the continuity cuts. Carl... Uh, is trying to get the TV to work. It cuts to Marge watching the beetle feeding its young. Like, they use TVs, Norman Marge eating. I think you glossed over that in a way where some people might not visualize, so sorry to interrupt, but just to clarify. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Carl, in one of his most heightened moments of peak, is smashing the TV trying to get a signal, and the camera zooms into the point where the screen is all the way there, and him hitting the TV becomes really unpleasantly loud, Mm -hmm. and then he hits it one time, and it resolves, and you're like, thank God that's over, he got a signal, and it zooms out, and you realize it's Francis McDormand watching TV. Right. Awesome. And everything (laughs) works fine. In her world, because she's nice. Yeah, (laughs) because she's not a criminal in a cabin that... Right overextending his reach. So sorry, keep uh, going with these. Yeah, that's, uh, that's what a continuity Ma- cut is. For uh, Norman Marge eating. Uh, there's a sequence where it just, it's like apropos of nothing, but uh, Stan Grossman, who's like the right-hand man of Wade, mm-hmm. uh, cuts to Stan eating. Like mm-hmm. the, there's a lot of continuity of just action that happens in this. And I don't know what it really does. Like, it's always been unclear to me. When, it's one of those principles of filmmaking where they're just like, oh, that's nice. 
Well, and it's like, what does it mean? Yeah. It often doesn't mean anything other sometimes than the interconnectedness of people having to do with the same right. issues, like fix a TV or watch a TV or stuff food in their mouth. Yeah, I don't know if it means anything that we write a thesis on like we did about right. the movie as a whole. But sometimes scenes just end and the next scene starts, you know, like you yeah. don't need. Um, but I would encourage people to look at the moments between scenes in Cohen movies because I'd say one out of five times they use it for something. Right. Um, one I really like is when, uh, I forget who, either Francis brings Norm Nightcrawlers, I think that's it, because mm. he's going ice fishing, mm. and it cuts from a long shot down the bag of, of squirm, worms. a bag of worms, yeah. and then it cuts to way, uh, uh, Jerry sitting, thinking about his evil thoughts, and you're like, yeah, the inside of his head is like a bag, a of, worms. bag of worms. I yeah. love that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so the, they do that just to, for something to do and that's like the tv one seems like it's just something cool to do that's that's <laughs> but that's that means that it's like it's like idle hands kind of thing but it also provides it's emotional like gotta texture. do something like the roller coaster has a right. dip because you go from hugely angry scene to calm like maybe they just wanted your emotions to be wrenched in that moment yeah. you know one way or the and other. i don't think it's like that bad to just like want to feel clever sometimes in your movies says the man who shits on guy Ritchie at every opportunity well i mean doing the same thing all the time (laughs) is different from just like having nothing to do there's nothing there and adding something yeah sure that's filling your time with something it's like i have an hour before i have to go to work read a book as opposed to i will constantly hold camera in this well guy Ritchie movies are like someone some guy Ritchie movies are like someone challenged him what if you could only use continuity cuts and that's the only trick you're allowed to yeah. use for the whole movie? Right. Yeah. I maintain that Lockstock is an, a masterpiece of a narrative. I still On think, par with Arrested Development. I still shit. think he's, uh, in terms, his filmmaking intuition is not so great. But <laughs> he... Uh, good writer, he, though. He, yeah, really good dialogue writer, I'd say, uh, or at least he's very evocative. Like he yeah. makes me think better than I think I could. And like draws images. Uh, and he's also mind. like as a technician, like he's invented some some real like cool effects that don't mean anything that but never you're like, existed. But before. they're cool. They are. But, cool. And you look at yeah. it, and you're like, fuck, that's awesome. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and uh, yeah, especially like POV cam stuff. Sure. Like he's he's like he's. Re- Really good music video director as well. Oh, yeah. So I don't want people to be immediately like we shit on Guy Ritchie or like, Wes Anderson or anyone like that we typically shit. Guy I typically Corey. shit on. All right. All right. It sounds like we're wrapping up. The last How Do You Do That, I'll spool out, is one that I think most people know. But in case you didn't notice in the credits, uh, the victim... <laughs> who gets the guy who witnesses the state trooper getting shot and then runs away in the field and gets shot in the back of the head by Buscemi. Mm -hmm. Uh, I'm sorry, by Stormari is credited as the symbol logo that Prince went by briefly when he was the artist formerly known as Prince. Mm -hmm. That is not true. Right. (laughs) Again. And I think that is one of the true story. One of the most, one of the times that their sense of humor most aligned with mine where they're like, let's just let's just throw in a joke from the news because like that had recently happened that Prince changed his name to a right. symbol. But <laughs> I like, like I love to think of whatever extra that really was was like I wanted my name in the I movie. Know. <laughs> it was probably yeah. Who knows? It was not Prince. They have it was verified not Prince. that. <laughs> uh, I also just love uh, like I already know that 
like even though I have no clue really what it is, but I just like have a feeling that it was like one of them was for some reason they're in uh, their apartment, even though they don't live with each just other. Just outputting the credits One, in one's avid. fixing eggs like Norm, <laughs> yeah. the other's sitting on the couch and he goes, what you laughing at? And they have Minnesota accents for some reason. <laughs> the Cohen brothers. Oofta. Yeah. I just had a thought. I just had a thought. What if we used uh, print, you know, the uh, symbol that Prince is go by now? <laughs> yeah, you put oh, that in the credits. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, geez. Oh, geez. That's a good one. That's eh? a good joke. <laughs> so that's what I imagine happened. Uh, all right. Final wrap up question because I do think it bears mentioning just real quick like pocket review, capsule review. I did one of my favorite things about the Fargo series on FX is that they tugged it maybe the only thread that I'm like that was a good thread to tug on from yeah. such a tight movie is that the whole first season spun out of the fact that Steve Buscemi buries this money everyone who knows where it is is dead or in jail and it could theoretically be discovered someday by some and that's uh, and the impetus for the first season of the Fargo FX money. series I highly recommend the first season with yeah, Tom Hanks, season. Billy Bob, and Oliver Platt. What are your thoughts on that series? Uh, like, I liked the first. I got away from it, and I haven't seen. Is it third season now? There are three at least. I don't, That's as many as I've, I've seen. I stopped watching halfway through second. Okay. Uh, just because I, I, the story is great, but it doesn't have the like it has the charm of the Coen Brothers, but yeah. it doesn't have the engine. And there are really, really deep in references that are yeah. enjoyable to a Coen head in the dumb way that like you know you like Marvel references if you love yeah comics. totally yeah yeah yeah. But I mean for TV reasons, like uh, really good performances by people. I think the tone drifted too far away from what the Coens do to be considered tr- by season three especially. Yeah. Uh, there's UFOs and shit. Spoiler I really alert. hope. <laughs> I really hope we continue our uh, recent fascination with like anthology style. Oh, I'm all about it. Black uh, Mirror. Black yeah. Mirror. Yeah. Jordan like, Peele's bringing True Detective. Twilight even Zone. like some can be bad, and like some some seasons can be bad. But like just the idea of, and even American Horror Story, which I don't watch, but I hear is but around the, the same idea. Uh, yeah, and all the seasons I would call mediocre to fine, except the Insane Asylum season is really a good is season good? of TV. Yeah. And that's what you're talking about. Like, what's great about uh, Fargo is I could fall off, but if I hear season six is amazing, I'll Just watch jump right back six. in. Yeah. yeah, I don't need to know about Sam and Snow, John Snow. Yeah, and like, what and even though I to. talk shit on True Detective, season one is truly an acting tour de force and a gripping story. I just yeah. didn't like the ending. So if I heard season three was great, I'd watch it. <laughs> right, right. Uh, I but love I love those anthologies. Oh yeah, we got to go British style. Yeah, 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 yeah. Or the opposite, Dragon Ball Z style. <laughs> Everything Every gets eight thousand episodes. <laughs> yeah, and it's all interconnected. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's that's the brothers. That's the Fargos, uh, and we're gonna do next time, probably my favorite. Wow, it's tough okay. to say. Probably they should though. know what it is, but they can look it up. What came after Fargo? That's right. It's Herbie, uh, fully loaded. <laughs> All right, we'll see you next time with the Blueski. The Blueski. <laughs> so long. 
This has been a Small Beans Endeavor. We're a bunch of pals who make podcasts, sketches, music, web series, and movies. The Beans always have new ideas percolating, so make sure to check us out at patreon.com slash smallbeans. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash smallbeans, where you can browse all of our current and past content, see what we've got planned in the future, and learn how your support can help the Small Beans grow into huge, giant monster beans. If you enjoyed this content module, please like, rate, subscribe, or tell a friend about us. We love you!